Welcome to ATRA, Voices from the Field. This sustainable agriculture podcast is presented by the National Center for Appropriate Technologies ATRA Sustainable Agriculture Program with support from the USDA Rural Business Cooperative Service. Hi, this is Rich Myers with NCAT. In this episode, John Wallace, manager of NCAT's SIP Farm, talks with Robin Kelson of the Good Seed Company in Whitefish, Montana. Robin and John discuss questions that beginning seed savers often have, as well as resources that are available for those who want to get into the subject in more depth. The SIFT, or Small Scale Intensive Farm Training Program, is part of NCAT's ATRA Sustainable Agriculture Program and is located at NCAT's headquarters in Butte, Montana. Let's listen. Hello, uh, it's John Wallace here with the SIF Farm in Butte, Montana, NCAT's headquarters, and we're here to talk about saving seeds. Um, Robin Kelson is here with us with the Good Seed Company. Hello, Robin. Hi, John. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for asking me to come. Yeah. So, uh, Robin, can you tell us a little bit about the Good Seed Company and your mission? Sure. Um, so the Good Seed Company was started in 1980 uh, in northeastern Washington in the Okanagan Highlands by a group of families that wanted to live off the land and uh, bought 600 acres um, up near the Canadian border and then discovered that uh, it was quite difficult to uh, grow seeds and plants there and grow their food there. And so they spent a lot of time identifying varieties and cultivating them um, to identify the ones that would do well where they lived. And they ended up saving those seeds, and then they ended up starting to share those seeds with others, which was the foundation of the the Good Seed Company back in the day. Uh, And I came along 30 years later or so, and uh, right at the time when the remaining company owner was in his mid-70s, Harris Dunkelberger, and was going to let the company go because he wanted to move on to doing other things and was going to let the inventory go. And I said, I will take your inventory. Please let me take it and um, share this, these fabulous seeds with our community. So I brought it to Montana and uh started the company here again, if you will, with a mission of helping to reestablish the community practice of selecting, saving, and sharing seeds for common use. And I'm happy to explain more about the mission if you'd like, but um, that's the company's focus, which is to basically reinvigorate our community's understanding of the need and um, the skills and value of saving our own seeds. Yeah, that's that's great. So, um, you moved from the Okanagan to Whitefish. Is that is that much of a different climate? Oh, so that's a good point. So the reason I thought I could do this is because their climate is quite similar to ours. Um, it's pretty much exactly the same. Uh, they get a little more sun than we do because they don't have the inversions that we have in our valley here. But other than that, uh, it's a zone three, zone four area and uh, quite similar glacial till soils and um so even though it's boundaried into another state it's really uh similar climate and uh geography well how so many, really all the all the all the all the seeds that do well there do quite well here how many different um seeds do you work with many different well, varieties. i have yeah i have about um 
I have some, I, you know, I haven't actually counted. I have somewhere between 180 and 200 different varieties of vegetable, oh, wow. flour, and herbs, or vegetable flour and herb seeds. And all our vegetable seeds are um, uh, seeds that will, they're open pollinated, which means you can save the seeds yourselves. Everything, everything we, that we provide are seeds that you can save. So um, there are no hybrids, and I can explain more about that in a minute. Um, and then with our vegetable seeds, they they all do well here, which means that they either if they'll either withstand early frosts or late frosts, or they store well. Um, they have good flavor. They have high nutrition content, and um, they're really intended to be high quality seeds that would do well if you were really living off the land yourself. So homestead seeds. They're not the latest and greatest and fanciest, but they're homestead seeds. All our flower seeds are pollinator-friendly, and we have a lot of medicinal and culinary herb seeds, which also have um, the value of being pollinator-friendly plants as well. Oh, that's incredible. Um, So you say that at the Good Seed Company, we believe in our inalienable right to open pollinate non-GMO seeds for common use. How big of a threat do you think that is to our unalienable right to do those things? And what do you think the biggest factors are? So uh, it's a real threat. Uh, and I don't know that I knew that when I took it really as well as I understand that today when I first took the company over. Uh, but the threat is real. And, and the two biggest factors are there is an ever-increasing um, increase, (laughs) ever-growing increase, I guess is a better way to say it, in the restrictions on our rights to use the seeds in our possession. And I'll share more about that in a minute. The other factor is we are uh, continuing to lose um, both the knowledge and the practice of local seed production and seed saving. And those two things together are what create the threat. So the first one, which is increased, there's an ever- growing increase in the restrictions on our right to use the seed in our possession, that's coming from the uh, uh, large seed companies that are driving hybrid seed production and GMO seed production and industrial seed production. Uh, And that comes through um, more patents on basically proprietary restriction on seeds, and that comes through patents or what are called bag tags, which basically Mm -hmm. say when you open a bag that contains seeds, you are by definition agreeing to the conditions of a contract. So it's contract law. (laughs) I've heard of some situations where farmers grow their own uh, wheat and they're actually um, blows to the other field and they've gotten sued because of issues like that. Exactly, and that hasn't that up until now has not become an, has not been an issue for the home backyard gardener, like perhaps mm-hmm. you were me. But it's starting to happen, and it's starting to happen because, um, so most, so there's there's open pollinated, and hybrid seed, and so open pollinated seed means that the the seed will grow true to type, which means you can save the seed and plant that seed and. The next generation will grow like the plant, like the plant you started with. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have a hybrid seed, is that it's it's when you mix. That's when you you mix two different varieties of of a plant, and the next generation is called the hybrid. And often at that right. point, the genetics are mixed up, and so those seeds don't grow true to type. And the larger seed companies um, 
when you make a new variety, the tendency is to try to protect it in some way through patents or to, to put some kind of proprietary restriction on it. And um, the seed companies have primarily done that through hybrids. And as long as you didn't buy hybrid seed, the backyard grower was okay. And as long as you bought open pollinated seed, you were fine. But what's happening now is that these um, seed companies are doing the work to convert the hybrid seed to open pollinated seed. And that just means you have to grow it out generationally uh, until the genetics settle and then it will grow through the type again. But they, because they're doing that work, open pollinated seed is starting to come into the um, backyard growers market that has restrictions on it or may have restrictions on it. And so it's possible that you might be buying open pollinated seed that you think you have a right to save seed from, but that the seed company may restrict your ability to um, do so. Wow, that, that uh, is very so disheartening. <laughs> that is disheartening, right? And so, so that's the one thing. And then the other thing is there are the, the heirloom seeds, which are the open pollinated seeds that have been in our public domain forever, you know, those have been passed down for generations, and those are in the public domain, and nobody can put restrictions on what you do with those. But if we stop saving those seeds and we stop uh, doing our local seed production of them, they will disappear, and then we don't have those. So those two factors together are what are creating a threat to our, what I believe is our inalienable right to common use, common use seed. Well, that's very strong. I, I really appreciate that. Um, I have another question mm -hmm. for you. Um, I like the note on the seed packet. It says, select, save, and share. <clears throat> and to me, this sounds like a call of action. Uh, what are some of the ways you help encourage other people to select, save, and share seeds? So I encourage everybody to save the seed when you eat your tomato. You know, grow your, grow your open pollinated tomato seed plant save the seeds from it, um, grow the next generation, and share those seeds with your neighbor. So right there, you're selecting, saving, and sharing seeds. Done. It's nothing special. When the tomato is ripe, the seed is ripe, it doesn't take anything. There's nothing fancy you have to do about it. Um, we also have, uh, there are seed libraries popping up all over the state of Montana and the country and the world, um, and these are basically a modern take on the traditional practice of community saving seeds from back in the day when we had to save seeds because we were our communities were responsible for feeding themselves you know that's how we survived for that's how we got to where we are today is yeah. up until last about 150 years we were responsible for our own food and in order to do that we had to have seeds in order to do that we had to save seeds so modern day seed libraries are simply uh, a modern day approach to trying to save community seed, and so seed libraries commonly share seed among themselves, so that's, uh, we encourage people to form seed libraries and share their seeds with others. Uh, we encourage them to share their seeds with school gardens and prison gardens, um, and then we have, here in the Valley, we have uh, an annual seed fair called Free the Seeds, and this is, this is basically an organized seed swap, so it's an organized gathering of people to share seeds. And those it's like a big seed library all at once. That's right. That's right. And they're very common. They're called around elsewhere in the country and the world. They're called seed swaps, and uh, they can happen, you know, 
a couple families around a kitchen table, you know, they can happen at any level and size. But there, it's people who grow plants and grow seeds and have gardens understand the value of sharing the seeds because that mixes up the genetics of your varieties and helps keep the the genetics vibrant in the variety, which uh, will keep it strong. So it's something you really want to be able to encourage in others. That's great. Um, I was lucky enough to join the Free the Seeds event, and thank you for inviting me. Um, I learned so much, and I got to get very involved with a lot of people who are very interested in exactly the movement we're working on. So thank you so much for that. And um, <clears throat> during one of the classes I, I took, uh, do-it-yourself seed saving and why it's important. Um, this presentation, by the way, who, anybody who's listening, is available at freetheseedsmontana.com, and we'll put a link up there for you. And I recommend that to anybody who wants to know some, some very um, you know, introductory knowledge of why this is so important. And, and she goes really well into the depths but, of it. But two things that really caught my attention was you said that in the last 100 years, the U.S. has lost more than 95% of its agricultural crop diversity. And also, you said 90% of seed of our industrial crop is owned by three global seed companies. And those are uh, chemical companies, I believe, right? Correct. Wow. Yep. That's... <clears throat> so how do those affect the seeds that we buy in the store? Or how, how, do, how, do, okay. how do those uh, facts affect the seeds that we buy in the store? Okay. So basically, um, the thing about seed saving and the reason why, you know, we ha it's like brushing your teeth. It's like flossing. Your I don't know. It's, it's like anything. We, we have to keep doing it. It's like exercising, you know. We yeah. have to keep saving our seeds for them to stay viable. And, and if we don't, we lose the varieties. So the reason we've lost 95% of the agricultural crop diversity in the U.S. in the last 100 years is because over the last 100 years, we as communities stopped saving our own seed and we relied more and more as growers on seed companies to provide the seed for us. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know, it, there's no harm or foul here. It's just that's what we did. And when we did that, seed companies, you know, made for a bunch of reasons that have to do with their bottom line and shareholder value and things that have really nothing to do with um, Soil health. What we're, <laughs> yeah, or or human nutrition. Um, yes. You know, they're they're trying now. They're they're so they're making decisions on which one which varieties to grow out. And there's tendency to grow uh, fewer varieties. It's much easier, uh, and also to kind of grow a one size fits all variety. And um, and also uh, there's less of an interest in growing out open pollinated seed because again then you can save your own seed as the consumer. If I if I'm the seed company and I'm more interested in having you keep coming back as a as a customer, I'm going to want to sell you hybrid seed, which you really aren't going to want to save. So you'll keep coming back year after year to buy seed from me. So there's less of an incentive for me as a seed company to maintain open pollinated seeds and sell those to you. So that's why, those are some of the reasons why we've lost that 95% of the crop diversity. And the seed companies over uh, the last 100 years bought up more and more and more of the smaller 
regional seed companies. So back in the day where we were relying on our own community seed, there were regional, small regional seed companies that saved seed. And um, they've just gone the way of these conglomerates. And uh, it also, for the industrial seed or the commodity seed market, which is really mostly our commercial seed, as in the last 100 years, as we have started to develop fewer seed varieties and more chemical approaches to, if you will, providing the fertility into our soils. Um, uh, yeah, that brings me back been, to the input substitution really drive behind um, the SIF farm. And, you know, originally I, my background was economics, so it just made sense to me to use the resources available. But, you know, as I've been seeing more and more farmers transition to more regenerative uh, practices, I've seen that they don't need those things that they've been told that they need. And so I think that's a really good cause for, for going in that direction. Yeah, so that's just the bottom line is that um, um, it, it turns out that, not surprisingly, the microbes in the soil know what to do. If we can get out of the way and do the work to create live, healthy soil, that's all we need to do in order to provide proper nutrition in the soil that will provide the nutrition to the plant so it can grow and provide and then create the nutrition in the plant that we then eat and then we take in in our bodies. And it's really, it's very, very simple. So I don't know if I went off topic, but the effect <laughs> of all of those two pieces, the 100 years and the three global seed companies, is is reducing... Um, the quality of the seed that's available to us and the varieties that are available to us. And the the companies that are making hybrid seed, I don't I'm not trying to demonize anybody. It's just they're making decisions on what to select for that may or may not be um, to the benefit of your your health. And they and the less access to open pollinated seed we have, the less control we have over the food we put in our bodies. That's basically the bottom line. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Um, also, during your, your presentation, you brought up three questions, and this might be really helpful for um, some novice um, seed savers like myself. Um, but one of the first questions you stated was, will my seeds grow true to type? And you pretty much already touched on this, but you know, just to help everybody else, what does true to type mean? Um, open pollinated is another term for growing true to type, and what that means is that when you grow a plant from an open pollinated seed, the seed that you collect from that plant will be just the same as the seed of the parent. So you can trust that the genetics are settled and you'll always get a kale plant if that's what you started with. Um, hybrid seed means you've actually started with uh, You've mixed the genetics of two different parents, and the seed that you collect from the plant that you grow is actually maybe going to look like one or the other parent or possibly like something entirely different, but it's not going to look like necessarily like the plant that you grew up. And that's just because the genetics are kind of mixed up in that first generation of a hybrid uh, plant seed. So those phenotypes won't necessarily hold true to the next generation. Right. That's right. It's it's your basic 
Mendelian biology from high school, if anybody remembers yeah. that. <laughs> so you Great. can't, you just can't rely on it. And it's, so it's, and you can actually, you can keep growing out your hybrid seed over generations, and ultimately you can settle the genetics so that they are now open pollinated. But it takes time and effort, and um, sometimes can be quite complicated. So most people just accept that for the most part, rule of thumb, hybrids are not good for saving seed. Well, that's great information. Um, another second, or the second question I guess you had was, uh, are my seeds selfers or crossers? Uh, my question right. for the audience is, what are selfers and what are crossers? Um, okay, so a selfer, you bet. So a, a selfer is um, a plant where the flower is designed to self-pollinate. So uh, tomatoes, peppers, peas, lettuce, and beans are all examples of plants whose flowers self-pollinate. So it's just the, plant, the flower is designed so that it really only accepts or most easily accepts pollen from itself. And that's different from what we call crossers, which are plants whose flowers are designed to accept or even require receiving pollen from other plants. And corns and melons, squash, and all the brassicas, your broccoli, your kale, your cauliflower, all those plants. Those plants have flowers that are designed to accept pollen from other plants, other members of that same species, but other plants. And so that makes a difference on whether you have to worry about cross-pollination or whether you can easily save seed from the uh, the plant. So plants where, that are what we call selfers are very easy to save seed from because you don't have to worry about cross-pollination. Um, so we call those um, beginner plants, if you will. And, and plants whose flowers are crossers are a little more complicated. You, you, if you're wanting to make sure that you are going to be saving seeds and you can rely that the seed you're going to be saving will be exactly the same variety as the seed you started with, then you want to create some kind of barriers to cross-pollination from other uh, plants of the same variety. And there's some simple, easy ways to create that barrier, but nonetheless, you have to give some thought to that. And so we call those intermediate um, plants in terms of learning to save seeds. Yeah, hopefully we can jump into that in the future because I think sure. this is going to be an interesting topic. So um, so uh, some of the things I've saved uh, seeds from are, you know, easier beans, peas, you know, lettuce, tomato, peppers, and eggplant. All those are probably selfers, right? Yes, correct. Uh, what What are some examples of crossers that someone might want to be worried about? So corn. Or not corn worried, but <laughs> aware. Yeah, and and yeah, so that's 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 another thing is like I, you know, it's it's there's no harm or foul here. There's not gonna there's there's no it's, there's no bad result. It's just. Um, you may not get the same variety back. So corn is one, notorious, um, and uh, melons and squashes are others. You know how you can see, yeah. you see all those incredible varieties of squashes, uh, you know, in the fall, and that's because a lot of people have, you know, a lot of that is just 
accidental cross-pollination. It makes it so just you're saying funky. my 13 pound squash that I uh, pulled out might actually be be a, a volunteer from the year before. <laughs> yeah, it must have and been it, a crook neck, but made, I'm not sure what happened. But it, it turned out huge and, and fed the well, food bank. Could so. be maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe combined with a pumpkin. Who knows? And yeah. there's no, you know, it's, it's, it's probably still good to. It's probably great eating, and you've now created a new variety. You know, mm-hmm. it's just if you, if if this is really only an issue or a thought for someone who is trying to maintain the variety integrity of um, a butternut, a, let's say a butternut squash. So there's 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 a or a buttercup. There's something called a Burgess buttercup squash, and it has a particular name and it's a particular variety. If I want to make sure I make more Burgess buttercup, then I don't want to cross pollinate it with another type of winter squash that could cross pollinate with it. But if I do cross pollinate, I've just created a new variety. And hey, there's nothing wrong with that. So yeah, you mentioned like something. You said eat your product. own mistakes. <laughs> That's right. It's all good. Eat your own mistakes. That's, that's a great lesson I, I've learned, and um, I, I think that's something to take home is that this can be a science experiment in your backyard if you, if you want to have fun. Yes, and that is why there are so, 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 so many different kinds of squashes. There's so many different kinds of tomatoes. There's so many different kinds of lettuces. You know, it's because we're all saving and mixing things up and making our own varieties. Well, great. Um, one, one, the third question you had in there, which I think is really, really important, is now what? Uh, so what are some of the considerations one would make when planning to save seeds knowing those first two principles? Yeah, so this is great. It's important to understand where the seed is in its uh, ripening process relative to what you're, what you're harvesting in terms of your plant. So... Very few plants are actually uh, ready to harvest together with the seed being ripe. So it, that's really your tomatoes and your, mel- and your melons. Um, when your tomatoes ripe, the seed is ripe, so you don't really have to think about it. Same is true for melons, particularly watermelons. But for most of the seeds, um, the seeds take a lot longer to ripen than the food is that we harvest. So given that, you need to be thinking about how much time is it going to take for the seed to ripen and how much space is it going to take. So in terms of time, think about things like your corn. So we eat our corn when it's still on at what's called the milk stage and the, the seed, which is actually the corn kernel, isn't really ripe for seed saving. So if you want to save corn seed, you need to leave some of your corn cobs on the plant until as, until basically the frost come and, and everything is dry. That's when the seed is ripe. And the same is true for bean seeds or pea seeds. We typically eat those when the seed is unripe because that's when um, the meat around the seed is tasty to us. Um, for those plants, really, if you're saving them for seed, you need to lay, let it ripen, which is plant way of converting all those sugars into a storageable starch, which the seed is going to use the next year to live on when it sprouts. Mm. So some of those things, so some plants you, need to, you just need to let them sit longer, and they're not going to get any bigger, but they're going to sit there for longer. Other plants are going to get bigger, 
as they go to seed. And those are the plants that we typically harvest the greens from. So if you think about lettuce, we harvest the leaves when the lettuce is small. And if you've ever had a lettuce plant molt on you, you know what happens. The yes. um, flower heads jump up, right, and this plant now becomes three feet tall, and, and maybe it's two or three feet wide. So it takes up a whole lot more space than when it was this lettuce plant that I was harvesting for, seed, for leaves. So I have to be willing to create space for the seed to, the plant to do its seed thing, which is bolt, turn to flower, and then turn to seed. And then I also have to let it um, also ripen. So things like lettuces, radish, um, um, brassicas, you know, your cauliflowers and your broccolis, those you need to um, allow a lot more time and sometimes a lot more space. And they can become quite unruly, if you will, as the flowers uh, take their time to ripe, to blossom and then develop seeds, heads, and then let those heads uh, ripen. So just creating container areas and putting some string around the plant to contain it is uh, important to consider. Well, so space and time are the things to consider. Yeah, that is great information for anyone who really wants to get started. So uh, I have to mention I was talking to the Butte Public Library, which is where we're located, and our seed library, um, I guess, has been struggling a little bit getting started, and and I wanted to ask you, is there any other resources you would recommend people to um, reach out to um, to learn yes. more about seed saving? Yes. Um, so we we had the same uh, discovery or issue here in our valley, and what has helped it tremendously in terms of getting the word out is providing workshops. So through our, we have a community seed library called Flathead Grows, and we offer a series of free workshops to um, the community on basically on how to reduce the barrier to entry for anyone who wants to learn how to grow food and then save seed. Uh, so we start them from the beginning, from how do you start your seed to all the way the seed saving, the series of six workshops. So things like that, we have the, we have the free the seeds. We, we do as many things in the community as we can. Um, there are lots of books that are available on seed saving. Uh, I think one of my favorite is called The Seed Garden, which has been put out by the Seed Savers Exchange um, in Iowa. There's lots and lots of other books. There's also the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, which is uh, a collective nonprofit in Colorado that is dedicated to basically developing models of seed saving and seed stewardship uh, specifically for the Rocky Mountain area. Uh, and they have an online seed school, so you can do webinars. Uh, you could have somebody take the webinar information, become a seed steward, and then share that in their community. Um, and then there's lots and lots of other resources uh, that I can send you some links to in terms of other books and that might be helpful. I, I don't want to overwhelm you, but yeah, no, th that's all great. I think we'll try to get some of those resources on the page so that other people can, sure. can link into them too. So this has been an incredible talk. This is something that I'm still rattling around in my mind on how to jump forward because boy, have you gotten me onto this 
this mission, and I really want to help people learn about the importance of biodiversity, how to save their own seeds, and, you know, uh, really what we can do as far as workshops and trainings and, and link people into that. So uh, I have one more question for you, though. It's, it's a little bit off topic, but I heard you were in yeah. possession of a bio-nutrient food meter. Um, I've heard a little bit about these things, but I just wondered if you could tell some people about what that is and why it could be a real game-changer in the food world. Sure. So this is still under development. We have a we have a, the first we have one of several first prototypes um, that are being that's currently under development, and it's the brainchild of um, the folks at an organization called the Bionutrient Food Association, based out of Massachusetts. And the idea behind the food meter is to develop a means that ultimately will be a non-invasive means by which a consumer could go into a store and using basically a light meter be able to tell what the nutrient density of that food of that produce is whether it's a carrot or a spinach or a head of cauliflower because we don't know anymore really what the quality of the food is that's in most of our stores um that's why people say who's your farmer you know it's really if you know where your food comes from, then you have more of an understanding of where, what the density, food density of that food is. So, anyways, this uh, bionutrient meter is intended to provide more empowerment to the consumer. Uh, again, it's under development, and so we have, as I said, one of the first prototypes, and we're working with uh, local growers in our community to gather data. We're looking at spinach and carrot and we'll be gathering data all summer using the meter to evaluate, to assay all of the produce being grown. And then that will be sent back to the folks at the Bionutrient Food Association. It's actually a subgroup of them and an organization called the Real Food Campaign. And there, the scientists there will then use the information and the data that we provide them to help calibrate these meters. They're still a couple years away from being, you know, ready for prime time. It's quite a complicated um, process. It's it's not simple to try to correlate uh, light measurements with nutrient density. You have to do um, uh, an extension of of the data in order to to connect it to the quantity of the vitamins or the uh, antioxidants that are in Mm -hmm. that food. But there's a way to do it. And they are committed to doing it in a way that is both transparent um, and and uh, open sourced, so that the goal is that there'll be no question about the value and and truth behind the information, and it's open source, so that nobody can then take the take one of these meters and then charge people for it. So you know, I'll teach you how to tell whether your food is valuable, but you have to pay extra to get that information. So the goal is to make this available to everybody. Well, that is incredible. And like I said, that could really be a game changer. I mean, it seems like you would be able to understand how long your food's been on the shelf and, you know, exactly. All that stuff. Yeah. And and actually the long-term goal is that really by the time this thing is ready, that we will have shifted the paradigm 
so that everybody is going to be growing nutrient-dense food because no one's going to want your food otherwise. And so, <laughs> you know, imagine the reality that by the time this is done, it wouldn't be needed because everybody's growing nutrient-dense food. It's in everybody's interest to do that. It's trying to push the the thought process and the um, uh, intention behind growing food in that direction. So helping to drive the market by being able to provide a way to determine the quality of the food. Wow, yeah. Well, well, thank you, Robin. And I truly believe that you the bet. work you're doing is going to have a great impact on everybody in our region and beyond. And so hopefully we, we can chat out about more of the results you have with that bionutrient food meter, and we'll hopefully talk again. So uh, thank you, you for sharing all your information, and I am on a mission to share that around all the residents of Butte and beyond. Thanks for listening to ATRA, Voices from the Field. Depending on the platform you're listening on, be sure to rate us and leave a review or comment. For more information on this topic, you can contact John Wallace directly at johnw at incat.org. That's J-O-H-N-W at N-C-A-T dot org. Also, in the notes that go along with this podcast, you'll find links to related resources, including the resources that John and Robin talk about during the podcast. And please call ATRA with any and all of your sustainable agriculture questions at 800-346-9140 or email us at askanag at incat.org. That's A-S-K-A-N-A-G at N-C-A-T dot org. Our two dozen specialists can help you with a vast array of topics Everything from farm planning to pest management, from produce to livestock, and soils to aquaculture. You can get in touch with them and find our other extensive and free sustainable agriculture publications, webinars, videos, and other resources at our website, atra.ncat.org. That's A-T-T-R-A dot N-C-A-T dot org. We'll catch you next week, and until then, keep on farming.